Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO, and today we're back in our studio. I'm excited for this one. This is the first international podcast for Project Purple. I've got Zoe Marchment on the phone with us Hi. from the UK. Zoe, how are you? Um, I'm okay, just um, suffering with symptoms from everything, but I'm here to chat about everything. Well, um, I, I want to thank you for joining us. I know with, we've got time differences, we've got technology, but we made this happen and you've got some health issues, uh, which is why we're doing this podcast and why we do the podcast. As we mentioned before we started recording, this is really given survivors and fighters an opportunity to share their story to inspire others, but also bring so much awareness to this disease. And as we were talking, you've done a vlog and you got away from the vlog because of your health. Um, but with that, I want to go in and what is customary on our podcast is we always give our guests an opportunity to share their story, their background. Um, you can go as far back as you want, or you can stay as high level as you want, and then we'll go from there. Um, our audience is vast, and we've had survivors, participants, Olympians, a lot of clinicians on the podcast. Um, so feel free to share as much or as little as you want. With that, the mic is yours, though. Oh, nervous. Okay. <laughs> um, so basically, I was first diagnosed um, with pancreatitis originally um quite a lot of people think that obviously pancreatitis um and chronic pancreatitis they they don't really know that the seriousness of um, pancreatic cancer along with it um obviously i'm quite a few um in quite a few groups and members in those groups are always constantly saying oh it's, it's you know it's not really much to worry about and i'm thinking it really is because that's how it started for me. Um, so I basically had chronic pancreatitis. They thought it might have been because of car accident that I had years ago, but we don't really know. Um, then I was taken for some tests because they thought it might have been a pseudocyst after I started having serious pain in my upper um, chest area. Um, just on the daily, it was like a stabbing pain, constant Um very, very painful. And I was getting very fatigued. Um, I was literally almost sleeping at work. I come home on the Friday, I would fall asleep straight after work and I'd wake up sort of like Sunday afternoon. So the whole weekend would go. Um, and it didn't matter how much I slept that literally everything just drained, drained me, um, with all the energy that just disappeared from my body that I was used to. Um, so I persisted with the doctor um, and she thought that it might be a pseudocyst on the side of my pancreas, but we'll get, get it checked. So I had an ultrasound originally. Luckily here with the UK, the NHS is a lifesaver. Um, I can't imagine how much it would have been. That's the healthcare system that's in the UK. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how much it would have been um, if I'd gone through it in your country. Mm -hmm. It would have probably broke me. Um, so basically I had C uh, ultrasounds and then CT scans. Um, then I went to an MRI scan. Um, they then found the tumor, uh, which was based in my pancreas duct, uh, main duct. So to sort of imagine it, it's a bit like a tree. You've got all these branches off and mine was pretty much in the trunk of it. Um, they couldn't give me a biopsy because some people get biopsies <clears throat> to tell whether or not it's cancer or not then and there. Um, mine was too risky because of where it was located. Um, so that tumour was called like an IPMN tumour. Um, don't ask me what that stands for right now because <laughs> it's over my head, all that medical jargon. Um, basically, when I had, I then got told that I was having surgery, so I had surgery quite quickly. Um, they removed it, and I had distal um, pancreatectomy. I can't even say it now. Pancreatectomy. That's it, and uh, spleenectomy. So, oh, they took my spleen as well. So, I had literally about like the head of my pancreas left, um, which is quite lucky because quite a lot of people have like a Whipple procedure, yeah. so then they get like major diabetes and um, they have to be on Creon and that lot afterwards. Luckily for me, um, I haven't had anything too major in that department. Um, only when I was 
diagnosed with the cancer two, three weeks later. Um, obviously, I was 27 when I got diagnosed, just going into 28, uh, which is quite young for it. And my oncologist basically said that I was a bit of a anomaly, a double anomaly, because they found it at type 1, where it was only just split into two bits of 5 mil cancer inside the tumour. Luckily, it didn't breach any of the walls. Um, like all my lymph nodes were quite clear, so I was very lucky on that side of things. Um, she then said, obviously, because of my age as well, because normally it's for people that are going in the 60s, 70s, um, usually get pancreatic cancer, whereas not, it's not common for someone at 28 or 27 to to, to get. Um, so obviously the statistics where they tell you, oh, it's 80% chance that you can come back um, or these these amount of people have died past the year one or two, um, they are actually older people and they may not have died from the actual cancer itself. It could have been like a heart attack or something like that. So with the statistics, even though it's 80% chance that you can come back, it's completely different for me in a sense because they're not, they're not sure what it's going to do because of my age sort of thing there's no like proper statistics in the NHS for those oncologists to see for my age so she couldn't really give me a clear view and at that point it was whether or not I wanted to take the chemo or just go on sort of thing and just risk it mm-hmm. um me personally I probably would have not done the chemo but that's because I didn't realize the extent of it because um it was diagnosed as an cardiocarcinoma. um which was quite aggressive, apparently. Uh, so obviously speaking to family and friends and that lot, I sort of realised I probably should give it the best chances I could. And uh, she went to another oncologist to double-check to see if the chemo, um, st- the amount of chemo that they would put me on would be beneficial, if that makes sense. So mm-hmm. I could have just taken a tablet. I know some people take tablets to chemo. But she wanted to give me the best possible chance. So she gave me Fulfirinox, yeah. which was the like the hardest one, apparently, is the nastiest one. So she was like, we'd blast it with that and see how you go and try and get as many sessions as you can. If you get past the, I think it was the three months from memory, um, then you can see how you are from then on. Uh, she said that sometimes the symptoms from chemo as well, it's... Uh, it depends on the person sort of thing. And unfortunately I had quite a really bad stint of it. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so are you, so this happens. So when was, what year was this that, uh, the pancreatitis started? I just want to start there for a second. Cause I have some questions. I'm taking notes yeah. by the way. So if, yeah, had no, vlog, no, if I had a vlog, I, you would see me taking notes. That's fine. Um, basically it started not last November, um that's just gone it was the november before so 2018 Seven. uh yes 18 2018 yeah sorry <laughs> brain's gone no that's okay that's okay so 2018 you have this bout mm-hmm. uh well you have the car accident first or no, was the pain- the car seven years ago from oh. there. So, so it was quite a long time ago that i had a car accident um so the car, the car accident so the car accident, they said maybe somehow yeah, assisted the pancreatitis and get in. Yeah, I, mean, I didn't have any damage to myself. It was just bruised ribs where the yeah. seatbelt was. Yeah. And of course, where the seatbelt comes, it comes just under your sort of breastbone and Correct. your rib area. So I don't know if that might have attributed to maybe bruising or something to start it. Yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I was told it was idiopathic originally because um, I'd had a previous case of it which i actually didn't mention just after the car accident um and they said they didn't know yeah i was in hospital for like three days and just on iv drips and um kneel by mouth and that lot so that was fun (laughs) but (laughs) but then obviously um had nothing for years absolutely years like seven to eight years and then all of a sudden it just came on with stress i think and that's it it was just there to stay really so it's so crazy. I mean, it's, it's so fascinating how, and you didn't have any other symptoms in between that. I mean, I know I always say like, we say hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Like yeah. we can look back and say, Oh, well I didn't recognize 
that I was, you know, having back pain, lower back pain for these couple months because I started to walk or I started to work out or I got a new mattress or I just changed my daily routine. But so there wasn't anything in between there that, you know, put up a red flag that said, hey, like, uh, Zoe, something's not right. No, it, uh, mainly it was more the pain. The pan- I thought it was a pancreatitis flare again um, and that it was just there to stay. Um, I thought, oh gosh, it's going to be like, I'm going to have to just deal with this for the rest of my life. Because there are people out there that just deal with pancreatitis, uh, pancreatitis that has the, that just have the pain and yeah. obviously some symptoms, but don't get affected with the pancreatic cancer. Um, it was by the time probably into the new year, after I'd had the ultrasound and the CT scan, I start, I started feeling really really tired i'd say it probably would have been february march time of 2019 um and i was really really tired and i just kept going back and i didn't lose any weight that was also another it's also another symptom but i didn't lose any weight i didn't go um yellow which is another symptom yeah, the jaundice, yeah. Uh, yeah you don't have to tick all the boxes to have it <laughs> that's yeah. the thing of what they realize is they're like oh you know i've got this pain in the back or i've got this but i haven't lost any weight so i'm i'm fine and you don't know just go get checked you know because <laughs> save your life so did you have a family history at all of any disease in the family um not with the pancreas i don't know any other cancers um, um from my mum's side um probably her auntie and maybe her grandma probably had like lung cancer or so yeah but they used to smoke very heavily. They were uh, Spanish heritage as well. So see, they were quite, and back in the old days, everyone used to do well, culturally of too. I think Europe, yeah. I think, you know, there's still, yeah. you know, that uh, smoking is more accepted maybe in, in certain parts I think parts it was more in the older age as well. So it wasn't yeah. anything like in the young age or anything like that. And I, my family hasn't had anything um, like my close family haven't had anything like that. So, so I know you um, mentioned the IPMN, And here in the United States, there's been a big push with anyone who now gets diagnosed with pancreatic cancer goes through genetic testing. Have you done genetic testing at all in the UK? I haven't, unfortunately. We didn't get, we got the chance to do that, but we didn't fill it out in enough time because obviously I went into surgery and had chemo. And by then when you have chemo, pretty much everything and anything is effort to do. Um, It's just effort just to get up and, and try and eat. Um, yeah. So, so no, I, I didn't follow through for that. But at the same time, like they said that there, cause I haven't had, my parents haven't had it. There's probably yeah. not a chance that comes from that line of lineage. Correct. But, I guess. but you're so young <laughs> though at, at 27, it's, it's a, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not a typical age where the disease would occur no. or present yeah. itself. Right. So it's, um, mm-hmm. it's something that's very interesting. So, you go through this surgery, you go through now, uh, through the cancer, the Flufluorinox, the Flufluorinox yeah. was brutal, which is like the kitchen sink of chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. They throw everything at you and, and yeah. a, a lot of people don't tolerate it very well. Where are you today? Are you still on treatment? Or I know you mentioned before mm-hmm. we were recording, you know, you kind of been dealing right. with some things. Um, I had a CT scan recently and I got the all clear, which is really good. Um, but obviously I can't, I can't breathe yet until the two year mark or yeah. well, I can breathe a bit lighter after that, um, from the two year mark of surgery, because that's when they know that then it might not come back again sort of thing. So, I mean, it may still come back after the two years. Um, yeah. as my oncologist has said, they, they don't know, no one knows the future, but at the same time, I know what sort of symptoms to look out for. I know that if I go yellow, if I've got pain again, or if I'm feeling extremely overtired, or if I've got like a really, she said a weird one was if I've got a very extended belly, so that was very odd, but I don't know if that's linked to maybe where it would come back in maybe the stomach because with pancreatic cancer, um, the two, the cancer cells won't come back in the pancreas again. They'll apparently come back in different organs. So you've yeah. got like your liver, your lungs, your, uh, I think she said spine, I'm not sure, but, and um, your stomach. So it could be any of those or bowel that it comes back in, but that's if it's, if any rogue cancer cells have got all round all of the chemo that I've had and also escaped 
from surgery, which mm-hmm. I don't think it breached it. So I think I was very, very lucky. And they just did the chemo just to make sure it wasn't in any yeah, like, they cleaned blood. everything out. Yeah. So fingers crossed. <laughs> so the last time you did chemotherapy was when then? Uh, it was in just the start, uh, just at the end of November. November two thousand nineteen. Yeah. So I'm just dealing with the, the the things at the moment. So I've got like neuropathy in my hands and feet, mm-hmm. um, which is quite difficult to walk because it's like pins and needles in your hands, and the cold can affect it quite a lot. Um, my hair's growing back, which is a good plus. <laughs> Looks um, good. Thank you. And then uh, I had a large long clot halfway through my treatment, um, so pulmonary embolism, and I'm still suffering with that, and it's like killed off part of my lung. Only a little bit, but you know, at the same time, it's I'm, I'm on blood thinner to try and get rid of it and stuff, so it can make me um, out of breath as well. But other than that, it's better than the chemo, and it's better than anything else that I've gone through. So I'm quite happy with it. So you're on the right path, but you're yeah. still dealing with a lot of the remnants of the chemotherapy just because of the mm-hmm. side effects. So I got I've got some questions here, and thank you for sharing our story with our audience and. As we said before we were recording, I, I think everyone is so different. And to hear, you know, one, your youth and to have mm-hmm. chronic pancreatitis for not having any other health issues or anything is just so fascinating and how that comes on. And then yeah. to go through this ordeal, uh, you know, the surgery and then the, the, uh, the chemotherapy treatment is really powerful for our audience to hear because I think one thing, you know, so I take it now, how old are you now, Zoe? 28 28 years old. So to be 28 years old and go through this over the last two Mm -hmm. years is is pretty remarkable and pretty powerful. Um, You know, typically we talk to people that are in their 40s or in their 50s um, and some that I just did a podcast the other day with a lady who's in her seventies and she got it when she, or she's 72. So she got it when she was 70 years old. So I, I think the one thing, as we know, with all cancers, they don't discriminate regardless of age or sex or, or ethnic group that you may be from, but it's really powerful. There's a stigma about, there's a, the stigma about pancreatic cancer as well is that it's just for age and everyone's just shocked whenever they hear it and you're at such a young age and it's like, well, it doesn't really give a monkeys, you know, yeah. it's, it's going to take whoever it wants to or, or try to anyway. So, so how was that? I, I got a question on that. I mean, yeah. your life before you got the disease was probably like most 27 year olds work and family yeah. and friends. Yeah. Um, going out to gigs and just enjoying everything. And I, cause I, um, sometimes do voluntary reviews for original rock um which is a uk website for bands as such um mm-hmm. obviously american bands that come to the uk as well a uh, recent one i did was wage war and okay. i've just done my which is my first one back sort of thing so that was quite hard and difficult but um i i enjoy it so i thought it's getting a little bit back to how i used to be so, so how does zoe at 27 or you were 26, you know, how, how do you mentally, what are some of the mental things I'm, I'm curious to hear from you that, you know, got you through this because you, you, I mean, we all know the reality, right? Like you go on the internet and statistically it's, it's very similar in the UK that it is here in the United States in terms of mortality and you know, what the, what the stark reality is, but what were some of the things that helped you get through this at 26, 27? I would say like mainly would be probably family and friends. Um, my partner was pretty much my rock. Um, we'd only been together for like about a year when it all started. And so obviously he stuck through it with me and was pretty much there through everything. Um, my family, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, they yeah they just kept looking on the bright side sort of thing just keep, you just got to keep your positivity really and um at the end of the day i just sort of i guess you come to terms with going in a sense um and death in that sense like you you know it's going to happen everyone's going to go at some point it's just what's going to take you um and whether or not you let it and i wasn't going to let it and 
I, you know, you've got Instagram stories of people going through it and, and even kids as well. There's some kids in there as well. And I just, I was following quite a few people and all the support from everyone as well through Instagram and, and some of my followers as well, following me through my story, which was quite nice. Um, just sort of kept me going through the, the times that you find tough and you get, you feel a bit broken at some points. Um, you have a cry about it, but you just don't, don't unpack that because don't you know it's, it's don't let it affect you more mentally than it is already doing physically if that makes sense like if the kids can do it and they've got it then by god i can sort of thing you know so that sort of egged me on sort of thing on the on the strength side of things and knowing that it wasn't forever it was only going to be for maximum of six months or four months four to six months really of the chemo and then it's gone and then I can get back to life and back to what I want to do and back to work which I'm doing next week <laughs> that's so, so. powerful to, to hear you say that it's not forever yeah I just wrote that down that's just so powerful because I think you know we think here in the United States, maybe, and, and I mean, I mean, this is globally, right? Like cancer is a global issue. It's not just a, you know, UK or United States thing that sometimes I think people feel like it's a forever thing, but to have yeah, that or inside of things, so, but there is always other ways to, to, to sort it out. And I mean, sometimes it, it can be the end on some people and with, some situations i mean it might be for me if it comes back we don't know but at the same time i'm when you go through it you sort of have to make peace with it if that makes sense and i'm at peace with it like if i have to go i have to go um but i'm not going to let it try and take me this time sort of thing so it's just trying to find that inner strength in yourself and just keep reminding yourself that like you're not the only one that's going through it. Everyone else is going through it. Try and reach out to people and and accept the help that other people are going to offer you. Like even if it's just family and friends, like that can make such a difference. Um, I had my friends that used to come, that when I was going through chemo, they came up to come see me. Uh, so they'd travel like an hour, two hours or so to come see me just for about three hours or so and then go home. Um, and that was almost nearly every couple of times every month so it sort of got me through to the next thing um and when you've got appointments and chemotherapy and all that lot it sort of organizes you so your brain just focuses on the next thing um that you've got to do uh and then realize and then really then the time just just goes and you realize you got to the point where well for me it was I got to the point where I couldn't have chemotherapy anymore because I was throwing up every day and it really was just destroying me like I was losing weight with it I think I lost about two to three stone um luckily I was quite a big girl so (laughs) 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 but obviously if there's people there that that are quite slim then that could pretty much destroy you and all your weakness sort of things you just got to try and eat and power through um yeah, I got put on like a sick pump as well to try and stop me doing oh, it daily. Enough. Yeah, it just got to the point where my last chemo session, I was throwing up about six times in whilst I'm having the chemo in the hospital. And then it was just constant all the way through the next two weeks. So basically I had the chemo um, every two weeks. You'd get like a week where you felt nasty after the three, three days of having the pod. Um, and then you start feeling about 80% back to normal from like, I'd say halfway through the second week. And then it just got longer and longer where you're getting ill and I couldn't recover as much like as quickly mm-hmm. until the next lot of it again. Um, so I, I stopped mine early. Um, but she was quite happy. My oncologist was happy with that. I got to the point where she said it was crucial for, for the sessions. I think it was like six sessions, say so three months worth and then she said anything after is just maybe a plus or may not have any different benefit and might be beneficial for you to stop because the side effects that I had with the clot and the tingling hands like the neuropathy and um the vomiting <laughs> so but quite a lot of people don't get that it just depends on the person who you are and how you react to the chemo so so yeah. I have a question for you though so 
was there anything while, I mean, you're, you you just, thank you for sharing. You're sitting there, you're taking chemo, but you're throwing up. Yeah. <laughs> Were there certain strategies that you had that you could share? I think it's powerful because maybe there's someone, and I know with Florinox, people tend here in the United States do not do very, most people do not do very well on that combination. Mm -hmm. It's a very toxic chemotherapy treatment. And I know, I'll give you the example, I just talked to the lady of the day, she was on it and then she just, she couldn't tolerate it. So they had to switch her chemotherapy, which happens often. But to do that, to sit there and, and take the chemotherapy and, and continually just know that you're going to throw up and feel awful, were there strategies that you used to say like, hey, like regardless of what happens today, how many times I'm going to throw up, I'm still going to get through the day? Um, I guess probably down in my reserve, I probably had that um, in my head whilst I was throwing up. I was going, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. I can't do this. But I suppose with my mom, because I had my mom mostly at my sessions, sometimes my partner, because he was working yeah. um, quite a few times. So he was allowed like one or two days um, holiday he took for me for on my sessions. But also the nurses and the staff, they pretty much, they're pretty much golden. They're worth their weight in gold, I'd say, definitely. And I don't think people really give them that much credit. Um and they sort of help you through it. They give you a hot drink if you need a hot drink or anything like that. There was a point where in my chemo, I had trouble swallowing and I was really, really like thirsty all the time. Um, so they say, obviously you have hot drinks and all that lot. And, but what they didn't do, um, which I, I was a bit annoyed about only one thing, um, not the nurses, it was more oncologists and, and the doctors, the GP surgery down in England, is that they didn't, even though I just went to them to say that I've been going wee quite a lot at night, I've also been really thirsty. They never checked my blood sugar. Obviously with the pancreas, it's mm. vital to really check the blood sugar, the insulin and all that lot. Um, so I just came in one one day before my well, at my treatment day, and uh, the night before I hadn't slept really, so I had bags under my eyes and everything. They went, oh, have you not slept? I was like, no, I've been eating the loo every hour. I was like, I'm really thirsty, and she's like, right, we'll get the diabetes nurse over. Um, found out that I had really high blood sugar, really high, like to the point where they changed my solution to saline, which mm. isn't really supposed to be for chemo, yeah. lot. but it was that point where she turned around and she was like, oh, you're in like, chemo uh, not chemo coma territory so you shouldn't be that high I was like right but what we found out is it was my steroids that I was taking for chemo that was just setting my blood sugars all over the place so even though I'm not necessarily diabetic at the moment I'm pre-diabetic I still had to take insulin shots and all that lot as well um, when I was going through chemo and to keep an eye on my blood sugars to make sure that they were down and not high um, so I basically was diagnosed with like a type three C. I don't know if you've yeah. ever heard of that. Yeah. yeah, it's like type one sort of thing. So if your sugars get too low, you have to eat something sugary, I guess. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, mine was just over all the time. So that's now <laughs> new because of the surgery and because of everything that's been going on that you got to. Mm -hmm. So do you take insulin daily or do you just monitor your sugar levels? And if there's an issue, then you'll adjust mm -hmm. accordingly. I used to take insulin daily. Um, I don't anymore, only because I know when the symptoms of when I've had too much sugar, if I've had too much sugar, I'm really, I've got a really dry mouth and I really need to drink loads of drink. Yeah. Um, and if that's the case, then I'll check my blood sugar and I'll be like, okay, it's high today. I'll make sure that I'm not eating too much sugar or I take a shot if it's over 10. Um, but majority of the time for chemo, it was over 10. Um, so I was always taking insulin to keep it down. Um, when I finished chemo, I didn't have like dry mouth at all. I felt perfectly fine. Uh, I was taking my blood to check them and they kept going to like eights and sevens, which is normal. So I think my pancreas was sort of going back into normal territory of trying to help like work as normal sort of thing. I don't know. But they've said to me, they're going to check me after three months. Um, without any insulin intake just to make sure that I am 
okay to be signed off for the diabetes team or so. So I haven't been taking insulin. I've been perfectly fine. So that's good. Yeah, <laughs> you learn a lot when you go through all these sort of things. You're just like, oh gosh. <laughs> so with that though, with knowledge, so you've learned a lot. Has the internet played a role in any of that? I mean, when you get diagnosed with this, what was your first reaction? Because I know some people we've had, like they'll go to the internet or they'll stay away, stay off internet. I know you said the help of social media, which has been great, which we'll talk about. But what was your first reaction on that? I mean, um, well, I use the internet beforehand, and beforehand when I first like started having the pain and the pancreatitis pain I originally went, went to the internet and as you do you sort of think oh I'm gonna google it oh no you know and you get up with this thing it's an like IPM tumor I was like oh I hope I haven't got that and then it goes to like pancreatic cancer and you're like oh I really hope I haven't got that mm-hmm. and I was like um yeah you have <laughs> um but then you just worry yourself so there's no point doing that until the tests come back and I think if you're gonna go to the internet at least do it when you know what you've got, not before you know what you've got, because it's just it's just unnecessary panic for no reason, um, and you just sort of worry yourself. And yeah, they 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 went to school, they went to university for a reason and, and college and all that lot to get the degree, so they know what they're doing and they know what they're saying, sort of thing. So you just got to go with what they say, really. Um, and I think from then on, you can probably go into like some support groups or so. I know there's quite a few American ones as well, which I'm a part of one American one, um, which I could see like how much like insulin was costing over there. It's, it's insane how much they can, they can charge over there. Yeah. The uh, system's a little bit different here than it is in the UK. And yeah, there, I think definitely. And, uh, I think you guys really need some sort of like help with the, like an NHS down there, really, I think, most definitely. Um, uh, Trump's involved, isn't he, I suppose? So. Well, I, yeah, we, I don't know. You know, I mean, um, I, I think here in the United States, I think, you know, this for-profit model, and, and you know, it's fascinating to hear your journey in terms of how quickly it seemed like everything flowed in terms of the diagnosis to surgery mm-hmm. and then to treatment. Whereas we've interviewed people here in the United States on the podcast and some people yeah. it's taken months to get a diagnosis really? um, because of the misdiagnosis um, because they're different healthcare systems. And, you know, mm-hmm. some groups are just generalists. And that's not necessarily the best place to go. Um, depending on the person's location in the country, will determine whether or not they can get access to a major medical center that deals with pancreatic cancer. Now, for my experience with my dad, I can share with you like we were pretty close, but we still went to a, a small regional hospital and decided to, you know, do care at the place. And I urged my parents to go to a major center, which we were close enough to get to. Now that's yeah. changed 10 years later, fast forward, there's more centers popping up that are, you know, major pancreatic cancer centers throughout the country, you know, being on the East coast and we're in between New York and Boston, you know, there's, there's four between, um, you know, New York and Boston right now that are major pancreatic cancer centers that are at centers of excellence. So, and, and there's places now, there's a facility uh, here in Connecticut that does a, a good job. And, you know, that's happened across the country now. So access to a major center is within means. And so that, I think that's the one challenging part that we have here in the United States. And to answer your question and, and then to talk about the pharma, you know, pharma has been very disinterested in the pancreatic cancer space, unfortunately, you know, within mm-hmm. terms of treatment. And I think, you know, unfortunately, yeah, insulin is a is a drug that has risen dramatically. Um, I think that's part of, um, you know, the current administration's issue, but then also our Congress as a whole. I think, you know, um, yes, the president does lead the country, but I also feel that, you know, Congress has much to say about those issues as well. And I think no, they've... Go ahead. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So I think everyone is to blame, right? Like there's this systemic issue, I think, that starts at the top 
but then mm-hmm. goes down into every level that there's an issue with, you know, not only access to quality care, because there's no uniformity in the, in the United States in terms of care, because it's not a, a one-stop shop in terms of healthcare process like it is in other countries like the UK, <laughs> where uniformly they can, you know, put genetic testing in for everyone. Um, we're here, you know, we needed an act of Congress to ensure that regardless of what center you go to, uh, you know, you're going to get genetic testing, which, you know, is, is tricky. Um, so I, I, I think there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses, right? I, I guess, um, you know, and, and that's the challenging part, I think, with this disease um, globally, and then here, you know, in the United States, and, and clearly, you know, the, the pharma thing's really interesting, you know, not only are they not doing a lot, but I, I get it from some extent that, you know, they spend sometimes billions and trillions of dollars to come up with these medications, because no one ever knows about the failures, they always just hear about the successes. But also, I think there has to be proportionally in line, like people have to be able to afford the medications, um, yeah. you know, so that I think there's, 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 it's like this tug of war or the seesaw battle that happens daily, you know, uh, like insulin is, has been around for a really long time. And I know at one point they were saying there was an insulin shortage and I don't know how that happens. Like, did a truck go awry? Did someone steal insulin? Did the batch go bad? You know, like, wh- why is there an insulin shortage? And that was the reason why they said the prices were were driving up because it was supply and demand. But, you know, I, I think we're, we're smart enough here and, and globally to understand, like, if diabetes is becoming this ep- this pandemic, let's say, or this epidemic that, you know, is is now reaching, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people that there should be more supply of insulin so that it would level out so we wouldn't have a supply and demand. From like just doctors or general physicians over there um, to maybe help to maybe like avoid each person from getting it, like advising and, you know, that's like what we're doing here. Yeah. It's just, just knowledge really, isn't it? Knowledge is key. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's yeah. the lack and that's hopefully, I hope we get to that, you know, clearly, you know, what your case, uh, you know, pancreatitis, if you had never had any health issues, like, so, but like, how do we understand this? Like, how do we avoid people getting pancreatitis? And I've talked to scientists about that here in the United States is like, what are the things that we can do? You know, smoking is a link to a lot of cancers and, you know, there's a link to pancreatic cancer, um, you know, for the people that get the disease and that have been heavy smokers. Um, It's a carcinogen and it's responsible for, you know, activating genes that do really, really bad things alcohol as well, you know, so in, and now there's a lot of talk about diet, you know, I mean, our, our food systems are manipulated, uh, not to digress and talk about that, but, you know, so I, I hope we do. The point here is that we do get to a point like other diseases where we can do a lot of these preventative measures, um, globally, you know, and, and yeah. I, I think there's some people out there that are, are that are trying to push for that. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll see some of that in this space as well here in the near future. I've got a question. I want to go back to something that I've heard a lot of here is family. And sure. I want to talk about the role of your family and friends and, and where this is coming from is a lot of times we have people on the podcast and I've heard this, like certain people go away or certain friends don't know what to do when someone gets sick like this because it's shock and awe, right? Like yeah, the patients but, yeah. in shock and awe and then friends are like, oh my God, how could someone get this? Or, you know, they were healthy or they're young. They didn't have any mm-hmm. issues. What are some, and the, and the question is, and I'd love to for you to share with our audience, what are some of the best things that your friends and family have done for you during this journey that you could share with our audience? Cause maybe there's someone listening that has a friend that just got diagnosed and they just don't know how to, they don't know what yeah. to do. They don't know how to react. They don't know what to say. Um, they basically just treated me. Well, I asked as well um, to be treated exactly how I was before because I don't, want them to be sort of modly coddling you sort of like oh are you okay are you this do you want to get this and i kept saying oh have you eaten one of my friends kept saying and i kept saying to her look stop <laughs> i'm fine i'm an adult I, you know i know what i'm going through but just treat me as normal um 
But yeah, so after that, she's just like back to the same old old friends sort of thing. Uh, and you sort of take the mick out of each other and that doesn't stop, which is good. So um, I suppose they call it, do they call it roasting over over there, I guess? Making sort of thing fun when you're of, people. yeah, when you make yeah. fun of people, yeah. Joke, joke around with each other sort of thing so um yeah basically um just listening to what they did and and they just kept me up to date with what they did in, in their life and that and yeah sometimes I was probably a little bit jealous if someone went on holiday or something like that because obviously I couldn't um but at the same time um it's just nice to have that different uh, I'd say situation outside of all the hospital trips and the chemotherapy and the being stuck at home and, you know, and being a little bit bored. It was just quite nice to see my friends on quite a regular basis and for them to actually like go out of their way through work and when they have shift work and stuff and, and to come and see me, even though they've got to go to work at security or something um in the middle of the night and they've come see me in the afternoon it's, it's quite nice and you sort of appreciate that as well and appreciate them as who they are as well and um yeah family on the other hand that was um a bit hard because obviously your mother always wants to be your mum it doesn't matter how old you are um so she's always going to be who she is and and you know that won't change <laughs> but uh, um but yeah, everyone just sort of treated you the same, sort of similar, and, and they helped you out a little bit. Like, <laughs> I got like care parcels as well, which was quite nice from friends and family, where I had like hats and blankets. <laughs> and um, obviously, going through Fulfironox, that made you very, very cold and like the temperature and everything. Even in the summer, like when we had really hot sun, I was freezing cold. So the hats and the blankets were. Uh, a very good uh, present for if anyone's going through anything like that. Um, just something for and other stuff for them to do in the day. Like I know it's a bit childish, but my um, partner's mum got us some Lego, so we could sit at home and just do it if we wanted to. So, so it just keeps you busy in the day. You've always got to keep yourself busy. Always, you just sort of sit there and just constantly think about it. Um, yeah. Well, that, really? thank you, thank you for sharing because I think it's something that comes up a lot here in the United mm. States, and and I think it's something that we've heard time and time again from fighters and survivors is just trying to keep the normalcy of life, yeah. and, and that's something that is so so critical. And I, I think that's where I think maybe people feel that uh, they have to do something different just because someone has a cancer diagnosis, but that doesn't change who the people are. You know, no, still... I mean, there's, there's one good thing that my friend did do. She did do a bake sale for pancreatic cancer in UK, in the UK. So That's where awesome. she works, they've got quite a lot of people that obviously go in and out of the staff room. And it's quite a big, uh, I'll say airport. I won't say where. <laughs> um, so, she basically raised quite a lot of money. She raised, I think she raised about 400 to 500 quid, maybe more. I can't quite remember off the top of my head, but yeah, all in just one day's work sort of thing of just baking and just doing something out of like for me, I guess in that sense. She, I think that's how she coped with it as well. Like, cause it is hard on friends and family and it's yeah. definitely hard on like your partners and your lovers and anything like that. Like to see someone that you love going through something like that, it's just, it's, destroying to them as well mentally um so you kind of have to be strong as well as the patient um for them in that sense like for example like my mother like every time I start talking about it she'd just cry but then she's got to do that because always she'd just explode in other situations sort of thing and it's fine to cry you know and it's fine to to have other people crying for you as well even though it feels a bit embarrassing but it if it's, if it's how they handle the situation, then that's how they handle it. And you've just got to let it be, I guess, in a sense. And, and as long as they're not like unpacking again and just getting more and more down, then it's, it's fine. Like, it's just the way us humans deal with things, isn't it? I suppose we, we get emotional, we get upset and it can come from even the people that you don't even realize sometimes as well, which is, which is very strange. Like even at work, like with my work colleagues, they, they got really upset and 
it quite shocked me because I'd only been there for a year. So, um, but it's still heartwarming. It's nice to know that actually someone like they care if that makes sense. So, um, and also, yeah, and one thing I will say is if you're worried about your hair, it grows back really fast. (laughs) It's been less than a month. It It looks great on you. Thank you. I'm, uh, I'm waiting for it to be happening. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you saying all that because I, I think it's so powerful. And I, I think, um, you know, the crying thing I, and, you know, there's a there was a guy here in the United States that passed away from a cancer and mm-hmm. he was a very famous basketball coach, Jim Valvano, and, and they started a, a foundation for him that's very popular here in the United States called the V Foundation. And he said, you got to laugh every day. You've got to reflect, yeah. I believe. And then his his thing was like, you got to cry every day, you know? And yeah. I, I think like people, you know, saying that it's just, it's so powerful because I think people feel like they, sh- they can't show emotion or that's like mm-hmm. a sign of weakness, but it's not, it's actually a sign of life. And you yeah. Know, yeah, acceptance. You know, it, it is hard. Uh, nothing is easy. Um, that's mm-hmm. worth it. But you know that that's just normal. Yeah, indeed. Uh, it's just looking after your mental health as well with it all, because obviously it's quite a massive thing to go through. Um, but as long as you're strong and you know deep down that you, you can get through anything, then you can get through anything. And now, if I look at anything, I'm just like, well, it's not worse than chemo. It's not worse than this, so I, so I, I could do it. I, I got know? a T-shirt for you that I'm going to send to you that we'll talk about after about that. Uh, we've got a great saying. We've got a saying here that says, "Work harder." It's not chemo. Uh, oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned. I want to talk about something you mentioned early on, and I've got one more question for you after this one. Um, <laughs> is you talked about social media and I know you've been active on social media talking about this. And I've, I've seen some campaigns uh, back in November about, you know, pancreatic cancer awareness and it highlighted people um, from all around the world and you and I connected via social media. So how has social media in a positive way helped you personally? And then, you know, maybe talk from about the awareness aspect as well. Um, I think for myself, it's more, I see it as the reason I got this is probably there's a reason for me to help in some way, even if it might just be one person. Um, it means that they might get checked early because there's symptoms that I've shared or just one post that might just pop up on their feed and they go, oh, actually, I have got that. I'll go and check with the doctors. And, you know, that's that's how I see things as really as if I can spread as much awareness as I can um, with it, then it's not all for nothing. If that makes sense. Powerful. No, it totally makes sense. And I think that's a, for 28 years old, that's a very mature response on the situation that you've been given and your story of, you know, everything you've gone through. It's not, it wasn't a walk in the park and, you know, throwing up six times while you're taking chemotherapy, I would never want anyone to go through that process, but to come back through that and say like, this is the reason so that maybe someone would know is so powerful. Yeah. Or even if they are going through it, like they know that they can come and talk to me or anyone that's, that's gone through it. They're more than willing. I always say, you know, I'm here if you want any questions or anything, just DM me or anything if I can help in any way or if you've got any questions that basically helped me through it um when I was diagnosed and I joined the, all these groups uh they basically helped me when I had queries like obviously oh has anyone thrown up has anyone done this has anyone tried this to eat rather than this because it set me off and basically just a band of people just coming together with all the all their symptoms all their um tips and tricks I guess on how to go through it um yeah, I think that's really most a powerful thing. It's like a a good community, if that makes sense. Like, it's yeah. powerful, powerful stuff. <laughs> My last question for you, and then we're going to give you an opportunity to share where people can connect with you. And this is kind of a loaded question, and I'll preface this: uh, there's no right or wrong answer to this. Okay. What is your personal definition with all you've gone through of pancreatic cancer? How do you define it? Um, 
for me, I guess in my eyes, I would say it's a blip on my lifeline, life timeline. That's it, timeline. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, it, everyone deals with it, I suppose, differently um, and can take it differently as well. But it's just how you see it. And if you just keep positive from it all, even though you're throwing up and feeling like the worst person in the world. And there's times when you even have the times where you sit there through it all and I've sat there through it all and I've said, I want to die. But you don't. And you don't really. Deep down, you don't really. You just want it to stop, like the symptoms, that's it. And it will do um, when you finish chemo or when the uh, treatment finishes, whichever you're having, I don't know. Um, it could be radiotherapy. I don't know if they do that for pancreas. Uh, some some people do, and I know like now like um, the radiation oncology uh, radiation has become more popular here in the United States with pancreatic cancer. Okay, I didn't know that, but um, yeah, so you just got to keep strong with it, really, with it, um, and just gather all your strength and just know that the day that you're having, if you're having a really rubbish day isn't going to be the same day when you wake up the next day. <laughs> it could be completely different. So just hang on in there sort of thing. You know that poster or that meme of the kitty that's just hanging on? Yeah, yeah. basically that. <laughs> just keep hanging on. Just keep hanging on. <laughs> so powerful. Thank you, Zoe, for that. Uh, last no thing, we want to give you an opportunity. So if there's someone listening to this podcast that is inspired by what you've said and they want to connect with you or they're going through what you may have gone through and, and might be somewhere along your journey, what's the best way for them to reach out and talk to you? Um, I would say probably Instagram. I'm on that quite a lot more than I am Facebook. Um, so my Instagram's chaos underscore Raven. Um, so if you want to follow me or just send a message, if you don't want to follow, that's fine. Or if you just wanted to check through my stories, I've got it all gathered together in one bit of part of, um, through from surgery to chemo, um, as much as I could do at the point. Um, yeah. And I did have a YouTube, uh, video up there. I also have video edits inside my phone that I'd never got around to putting up, but, um, I am here. It's all in here. So awesome. feel free to give us a message or a chat or something. Awesome. Um, more than happy to give you a reply. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Zoe, thank you for being a guest on the project purple podcast and sharing your journey. Yeah. I've got something here that I wrote down again. I've been writing notes that really stands out to me. And what you said is it's not forever. So yeah. with that, I appreciate you being on the project purple podcast from afar across the pond, as we say here in the United States um, and sharing your story. And as we say here at project purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the project purple podcast. Yeah.